0: morning, City Church. Um, I I just want to thank you. Well, let me introduce myself in case I've never met you or you're just not aware of why I'm up here and your pastor's not up here. My name's Jim McLean. I'm one of the elders here that served at the church. Last week, you had the other elder, Caleb uh, Hannum, Who brought the word of God and did an excellent job with that and challenged us with the whole armor of God Uh, and uh, you are a part of a church that follows the biblical model where your pastor actually believes that the elders according to the scripture should be able to teach the word of God and gives them the opportunity to do so Uh, and I want to thank you as a church for giving your pastor uh, the permission to step off of the podium long enough to focus on his wife and his son as they go through surgery and they're restoring their body and God's bringing them through, through the process. Uh, and I'm so grateful that our pastor puts his family at a, such a high level in his uh, in his life. He sees that his his primary thing in, in life that he has called to do is to be a, a husband and a father and he sets that example. Uh, I want to pray, Uh, uh, Brenda and I stopped by there Friday, Uh, if you haven't seen uh, Pastor Jim and Carmen lately, you know uh, Carmen went through surgery, Zoe went through surgery. We stopped by Friday and dropped off some of the meals that people are preparing and were able to interact with them shortly and Zoe, I can tell you, was Zoe. Uh, He was back to himself uh, and Carmen looked good, she came in the room, she was up and about and she looked good and I was grateful to see her. Uh, and see that God is restoring her and Zoe back to perfect health. And we just pray that the Lord will continue to do that. And as we go into the Word, let's just open up with prayer. We know the Lord is already here with us, but I never want to open my mouth and begin to talk about uh, take you through the Scripture without, without a moment of prayer. And we just, Heavenly Father, we praise your name and we worship you and honor you. Lord, we don't take this time lightly. We've come here for no other reason but to lift up the name of Jesus the Christ. We've come here to boldly approach the Father through Jesus, the Son, and in the power of the Spirit of God. And we've come here to make your name known. We've come here to lift you up. We've come here to bow before the throne of grace and ask you what it is you want to say to us. Lord, I'm so humbled to open my mouth and open the scriptures, and thank you for the opportunity, but I just want to get out of the way. I want somebody to see Jesus today, Lord. Help me not to be a distraction. Help me, Lord, to to boldly bring the word, but also to humbly stand before you and allow you to speak through me. I know that your word will go forth and accomplish what you send it to do, and it will not return void. But we pray, Lord, that in this room and people online, that they would hear what the Spirit of God is saying to them personally. Help us as a church to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to us as a church. And throughout this city and throughout this region, those who preach and teach your word, Lord, we pray that the Spirit of God would go forth and bring people into salvation, call sons and daughters back into relationship. Set the captive free, Lord. We thank you for what you're doing in Carmen's life and in Zoe's life and just pray, Lord, you just continue the healing process and we honor you in Jesus' name, amen. So uh, this morning we're gonna wrap up the last in the series of Seize the Moment. Uh, This is it, we're finishing up this series. We've been going through this for several weeks. Uh, and uh, this is going to conclude that and the name of this message would have called this one is the heart of a father. I I think you're gonna find as we go through it why uh, that title is evident and we've only got four passages of scripture, four verses to go through. It's chapter 6, the last four passages, 21 through 24. It's not the only scripture we're going to look at. Uh, I cannot uh, bring Scripture without always going to other scripture, uh, so I hope you can walk with me as you go through this, this message. I've been chewing over this myself. Uh, the Lord has been ministering to me through it, so I hope he'll minister to you through it. I will remind you that the book of Ephesians, we call it the book of Ephesians, but it was a letter written by Paul to a church in a city called Ephesus, and I remind you that it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's also the heart of the Father. That's part of the reason why I called the message the heart of a father because it's God the Father speaking to his church. And as it's been said several times, that church was not receiving any correction from Paul, that church was re- receiving direction. Paul was challenging them because what Paul was saying, while he had some hard conversations, and your pastor, Jim Simpson, brought us through chapters 4 through 6, and several of those included some hard conversations. Some of those things could have been things you said amen to. They may have been things that you said oh me to. There may have been some stepping on toes. And you know what? Scripture should do that. If, if I'm in a church where all I get is a pat on the back and affirmation and I go away going feeling good about myself all the time and I don't ever feel correction come into my life, maybe we're skipping something. So I really appreciate the line-upon-line line method that we're taking because it includes, at times, some hard conversations. Because the whole part point of that is that Paul wrote this letter to the The church in Ephesus, the Spirit of God spoke through that inspirationally, and God the Father is speaking to His church even today because He's challenging us to grow. It's not about just coming to the altar or going to a response team and praying a prayer and saying, I believe Jesus is my Savior and died for my sin, but it's going on from that and actually growing to maturity, which is a process that I'm still walking through. And and I realized, I told my wife, I think this morning, I realized this summer, I don't remember exactly the day, but it's 30 years this summer, 30 years ago, I'll be 61 here in a few weeks. I was 31 years old when I came to Christ. I'm ashamed to say it, but I ran from God until I was 31 years old, but praise God, he didn't give up on me. And it's been a 30-year process of growing up, and he keeps reminding me of things that I need to work on. The whole point of what Paul is writing about in this book of Ephesians is not just salvation, but it's transformation. It's being renewed in our mind. It's being changed and transformed, and not just being a better version of me, but being a representation of him. And that's what I ask this morning. I hope and pray that I can get out of the way, and you won't just be seeing me, but you'll hear what he's saying to you. And it's a humbling thing that he can do that through your mouth. He can speak into the life of somebody else. I remind you, it was written by Paul. He was written from a prison cell in Rome. It's important, and I always like to mention this when I go through this type of teaching, is, okay, what in the world was Paul in prison for? You say he was in prison. Well, why was he in prison? Well, he was in prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was in prison, specifically the Jewish people came after him because he was preaching that you could be born again, you could be a Christian, and you didn't have to first become Jewish. We talked about that some weeks ago, and I challenge you, if you're not familiar with it, to go through that and explore that. But he's in prison, and, and it's, I think it's been a few years ago when we were back at the, uh, we were at the Savannah Theater, I think that's when we did the, uh, the line upon line through the whole book of Acts, Uh, And that's out there. I'm sure it's out there on YouTube. If you want to go back and go through that, Pastor Jim took us through that. But just real quick, I want to set the stage for the importance of what Paul's telling them. In Acts chapter 21, we find Paul getting arrested in Jerusalem. He's falsely accused. He went there on purpose. It wasn't a surprise. He knew it was coming. He had been warned prophetically by some who thought, well, you don't want to go there because you're going to be arrested. And he said, hey, I'm ready to go and be arrested. And I'm ready to die if I have to for Christ. And he went there on purpose. He's taken into custody by the Roman troops. He's sent to Caesarea in Acts chapter 24. He spends about two years in Caesarea, goes through multiple trials, and they're trying to manipulate and get somehow to get the Romans to release him and take him back to Jerusalem because they want to murder Paul. They want him dead, but Paul's a pretty smart guy, and he knows he has to go to Rome. So in Acts chapter 25, he plays the card he has, as a Roman citizen. said, you, you can't send me back to Jerusalem I'm a Roman citizen I appeal to Caesar because he's got to go to Rome and he knows that so they send him to Rome and in Acts chapter 25 that happens and the book of Acts concludes in Acts chapter 28 with Paul in Rome, there's about a two-year period mentioned there in just a few verses. He's allowed some freedom. Jewish people are coming there to him to hear, Well, what are you? we haven't heard anything. We haven't had any letters. We don't know why you're here. We don't know why you're in custody. And he does what Paul always does. It's all about the gospel. It's all about transforming lives. It's all about people being changed by Jesus the Christ and he preaches and teaches them the word and just like everywhere else that he had ever been and brought the word some people believed others began to argue with him and then he goes back by the unction of the spirit and he goes you know the Holy Spirit spoke rightly of you and he draws all the way back to the book of Isaiah and he proclaims a few scriptures about the hardness of their heart the dullness of their ears and their unwillingness to be changed and the book of Acts stops. Let me bounce back a few chapters for the setup of this church in Ephesus. Well, okay, Jim, how'd the, how'd the church get formed? Well, that happened as Paul was going out on his second missionary journey. He goes with Paul and his, his friend Silas. Prior to that, his first journey, it was Paul and Barnabas. And if you remember, Paul and Barnabas couldn't do ministry again the second time because they had gone around uh, the region with the first journey, set some churches in place. When it became time for Paul said, Hey, let's go back and check on them, see how they're doing, and he wanted to expand the ministry further. Him and Barnabas had such a falling out, even though that they both loved Jesus, they both were doing life together, they both knew what was important, they couldn't do ministry together anymore. And Paul went with Silas on this second journey, revisited those first churches to encourage them, but he also goes to new areas where no one else had been before and when he goes to Ephesus he meets 12 men the scripture picks it up with these 12 guys it says about 12 men and he has a very odd encounter it seems maybe from the beginning but the first mention in Ephesus of him speaking to anyone is in Acts 19 verse 2 and he asked them a question he didn't ask them hey do you Are you believers in Christ? Do you know Jesus as your personal Savior? Have you heard the four spiritual laws? He hasn't given them any of that. He asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And he said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So really what Paul's getting to and his unique method, and you can use different ways to do this, but he's getting straight into the conversation to find out what it is that they do believe. What do you believe? What is it you know? Do you know God? Well, they, they were believers in God. They'd heard about God. They were believers. The scripture tells us that, but the question is, what did they believe? Somebody to tell you, yeah, I believe in God. Well, well what do you believe? I believe in Jesus. What, what do you believe about Jesus? You, you, you ever had a conversation with somebody? I have several times. I can think of several examples. i have having a conversation with somebody. We're talking about spiritual matters. We're using the same words, and we get to a point in the conversation where I realize we're talking about something different. We're not talking about the same thing even though we're using the same words. That's one of the things, many things I respect about our pastor and his wife, but one of the one thing I see that's so valuable that they do, Pastor Jim and also Carmen are very intentional about always defining the terms. Because in the day and time we live in, more than probably ever, we've gotta know what we're talking about, and we have gotta define the term so we know that the person we're talking to understands what we're saying, and they aren't just agreeing with us and thinking something completely different. So get to the root of the matter, find out what it's about. So when he finds out that they had, uh, when he opened that scripture, we go back to verse three through five, and he says, into what were you baptized? And they said, "Unto John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptismal repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So... The 12 men that he ran into in Ephesus when this church is going to be born, they had heard John's baptism. I don't know if they heard it from John. I don't know if they'd heard it from John's uh, disciples or maybe someone else who had been baptized under John was now proclaiming it and sharing it. But they had gotten as far as this message of repentance. They had gotten as far as being baptized in the name of God for repentance. But they didn't know about Jesus. John's message, I remind you, was not about John, but it was about someone else's coming. I'll take you to the book of Matthew real quick. Matthew 3, and John said, I baptize you. He's out there in the wilderness. He's doing the thing God called him to do, and he said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Look, Paul presents to them the message of hope. Paul takes the opportunity to tell them about the crucified and resurrected Savior that paid for my debt, that paid for my shame, that paid for my guilt, and offered me life eternal in his name. And they took it. And they crossed from just the place of repentance to the place of salvation. Now they're born again. Now they're... They're followers of Jesus the Christ. And to take the next step with this in verse 6, it said, And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And I'm not going to go there. Uh, I don't know what you think of that scripture when you read that. I've got about 20 years in the Pentecostal church in my background, so we could talk about that on the side. But I will say this. There was some evidence of the transformation in their life. They weren't just going to church. They weren't just doing the thing and listening to the pastor and, okay, I heard a sermon today and we sang some songs and I liked that one, but I don't know about this one and I didn't understand that one. And, okay, this week I go back to doing what I do all week. They were changed. They'd been transformed. The Spirit of God was doing a work in their life and there was evidence of it. Look, if you follow me around, or we have friends, or you can ask my friends, you can ask my wife, and they'll say amen. If you're around me very long, you'll see some evidence of flesh, because I'm I'm not perfect, and I don't claim to be. The Lord's still working on me, but I hope and pray that if you spend some time around me, you'll also see some evidence of the Spirit of God in my life that's working in me. And the point that he uses flawed, broken creatures to do this blows me away. I still haven't gotten over that. But this also matches what Paul was doing, matches up with what Jesus promised. The night that he was betrayed and he was arrested, he made a promise to his disciples. He, he told them, and they were sorry to hear it, that he was going to be leaving because he had been with them physically and bodily with them over three years, and it's now time for him to be crucified, and he's going to leave them, and they're upset about it, but he made them a promise that still holds true to us today. And that's why Paul could ask them, have you heard about the Holy Spirit? Have you received him since you believed? In John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus is speaking, and he's talking about when he leaves, who he's going to send. He said, when he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And when the spirit of truth comes, verse 13 through 14, he'll guide you into all the truth, for he'll not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he'll speak, and he'll declare to you the things that are to come, and he'll glorify me, for he'll take what is mine and declare it to you. Look, here's the deal. Without the power of the Holy Spirit working in the church and working in us individually, we are powerless. The absolute best that I can do is exhaust myself in the flesh trying to do a work of the Spirit. And it doesn't work. I can put together a message and and I have a pastor who will give me the opportunity to bring it. But I tried desperately to get out of the way and say, Holy Spirit, there's something you want to say to me, and there's something you want to say to other people in the room. There's something you want to say to people online. Help me to get out of the way. And if you can use this mouth to speak, I am still blown away on how he will speak to people about something else completely different. And I am over myself, and I'm just faithful and willing to do it and asking him to be there to empower it. Jesus promised when he left, somebody else was coming. He was sending somebody else, and he wasn't just going to be with them bodily, but he was going to take this to a new level. He was going to be in them. He said, and I love this passage, John 14, verse 15 to 17, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments, and I'll ask the Father, and he'll give you another helper to be with you forever Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, and I love this part. For he is with you, and he'll be where? Where's he going to be? He's going to be in you. As believers in Christ, the spirit of God actually lives in you. And and, and if you don't have that background and you have never really focused on this a whole lot, I double-dog dare you. I don't just dare you. I double-dog dare you to dig into this and ask the Spirit of God to fill you and see what happens. Paul stays in Ephesus. He reasons in the synagogue for about three months. Now, when it says that Paul reasoned, it means he was opening the scriptures he was going into the scriptures and he was taking the scriptures and proving that jesus was the christ and i ask you a question if you haven't thought about this lately what scripture was he using because the new testament didn't exist yet new testament hadn't been written and canonized it was letters circulating around the churches it was someone sitting down and pinning by the inspiration of the spirit the gospel accounts they had the Old Testament. They had the Greek version of the Septuagint. They had the Tanakh, the Hebrew original scriptures. And whichever one Paul was using, it challenges me. It goes, when's the last time you tried to share somebody the gospel of Jesus Christ and use nothing but the Old Testament? I mean, if I am just going to share Christ with somebody, I'm going to take them down the Roman road. I'm going to take them into New Testament passages. I can think of many. But what if all you had was the Old Testament? Do you even read the Old Testament? And if you read the Old Testament, do you see Jesus in the Old Testament? There's a number of passages. Isaiah 53 is one of my favorites, and there's a, uh, there's a number of others, but I, I'm nowhere near, I, and I don't pretend to be, but Paul and these apostles, that's what they had, the Old Testament, and they could go in the Old Testament and walk you through it and prove that Jesus was the Christ And in Paul, he usually would just spend a short time with any of these churches, sometimes because they ran him out of town, sometimes because there's a riot and he has to leave. But in Ephesus, he made a special extended stay, and he spent two years there. Uh, It it says in Acts 19.10 that he continued for two years, and so all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul, he spent two years in Ephesus. And while he's there, I'm not going to go through all this, just a quick little summary in Acts chapter 19. It tells you really that Paul was doing extraordinary miracles while he was in Ephesus. The power of God was showing up in a mighty way. It's also where the seven sons of Sceva attempt to copy what Paul had been doing. They see the power of God at work. They want to capitalize on that. They want to be seen as someone who can operate in the power of God, and they try to utilize it for their own Uh, selfish reasons and in acts 19 13 it tells us that some of the itinerant jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the lord jesus over those who had evil spirits saying i adjure you by the jesus whom paul proclaims and we know they were beaten and defeated and embarrassed because here's the deal Jesus isn't gonna allow his name to be manipulated by anybody It's not about a hashtag Jesus name It's not about throwing Jesus name on the end of every prayer and believing because I said in Jesus name It's always gonna happen. This is not a good luck charm. This is not something. I can manipulate This is not something I can use for my own selfish means. I have to know him I Wish I'd I wish I'd named that then I, I should have called that the name of this message You must know him. That's what it's all about. It's about knowing him and being transformed my him. They were humiliated and beaten, and they were embarrassed, but if I leave this world without knowing him, if all I desire is to profit from his name without a relationship, Then I run the risk of leaving this world without knowing Jesus and missing out on the one thing that was a most important thing in my existence on this planet. And I can speak as someone who's getting a little older. I'm getting closer to the end. I've been walking with the Lord now for 30 years. But in 30 years, I'll be 91 if the Lord lets me stay on this planet that long. And I am getting more and more aware of the time of my departure. It's coming. It's coming. It is out there in the future. I don't know how soon it's going to be. But I need to be ready to stand before Him. And He's made a way. We say it in church a lot. Uh, it's one of our taglines here at City Church. is uh, knowing Jesus is a great way to die, but it's a better way to live. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Absolutely. <clears throat> when I came to Christ in 31, I was thinking about how I was going to do life. But, but, but now I'm looking at how am i going to finish life. And no matter how long you live on this planet or how old you are when you leave, it is short compared to eternity. No matter how long your life is. My dad made it almost, he was a week from 96. Long life, short in comparison to eternity. It's about knowing him. Paul is determined, and this this surprised me, right there in Acts chapter 19, the the miracles are happening, the seven sons of Sceva do their thing, and right there smack in the middle of that, while Paul's in Ephesus, he decides, I gotta go to Jerusalem, and I'm gonna go to Rome. It's right there in Acts chapter 19, verse 21, the first time I see it pop up. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome there's now something birthed in his spirit man he knows the Lord has for him to do and he's willing to go do it no matter what it cost him and right after that Acts chapter 19 records a riot that happens in Ephesus a silversmith who made his living making false gods Creates a riot because the power of God is having an impact in that city. It's being changed, and it's having an economic impact because nobody has any use for anything that's a false God when they have the real God. You got Jesus in your life; nothing else, nothing else is going to do it. Years later, Paul's in prison. He's in Rome. It's, been ha- it's happened. He's there. He's writing back to this church in Ephesus. And that's the story we've been pursuing for the last few weeks. The letter that he writes them. Now he also wrote several other letters. He wrote a church in uh, Philippi. And we find it in Philippians chapter 1 verse 21. And this could be an awesome t-shirt. But Paul said, it, and he meant it. He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul's sitting in a Roman prison, doesn't know if they're going to execute him or not, and it's not that he doesn't care, but he's willing to die, and he recognizes that if they take my head off, in an instant, I'll be in the presence of the Lord. And if they let me live, I'll just keep on preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's willing to do it, no matter what it costs. Look, Paul had true joy. Paul had joy that didn't depend on how the outcome fell out for him. Paul had joy that didn't depend on what he went through in life, whether he had a lot, whether he had a little, whether he was struggling, whether he was on top of the world, and that's what led me to Christ. I get passionate about this because that's what led me to Jesus, a co-worker named Pete Sudeth. I don't know if Pete will ever hear me say this, but I've been saying it for 30 years. I've worked with this guy. I hid for him for two years. I had to work with him daily after a two-year period, and he knew Jesus I'll save you. The, give you the short version of this story for time, but one day my life was falling apart because I had made poor choices, was not living for the Lord, and didn't know Christians, and didn't want to know Christians. And the Lord made me work with this guy for a long period of time and form a friendship. His life was having a hard time. His wife was having health issues they couldn't fix. They didn't know what was wrong. And I asked him one day, and I said, Pete, how in the world do you stay so happy in the middle of everything that's happening in your life? And he simply said, guess it's my personal relationship with Jesus Christ and he walked off all I can tell you is the Spirit of God grabbed that comment and pierced the darkness around my heart and illuminated me to understand and realize as I started walking away from that spot first thought that crossed my mind was Pete Sudeth knows Jesus he ain't just somebody going to church, and it's not just a Bible story I heard when I was growing up. He knows him. And the next step, it was, well, if Pete Sudeth knows Jesus, then Jesus is real. And if Jesus is real, i got to deal with this. And it was about a week or so later when I got on my knees in my apartment and asked Christ to come in my life, and I said, you know that Holy Spirit I've heard of, I've heard people talk about, I don't, I don't know what that's about, but I think I'm going to need that. <laughs> I think I'm going to need that because... I'm not willing to just go to church. I got to be changed. I can't keep doing life the way I was doing it up to that point in my life. Joy doesn't depend on what happens around me to me. Joy comes from something much deeper. I thought he was just happy. I found out later he had true joy. I found out what that is. Paul opens his remarks in this letter to the church in Ephesus by this. And I'll take you all the way back to our beginning of our study. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, he said, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What I take away from that also can make an awesome T-shirt. Be faithful in what you believe. If you're a follower of Christ, be faithful to Christ. Live it. Let people see it. Don't hide it. Don't pretend. Do it, be it. Let it work in you and through you. Because when he wrote that letter, he wasn't writing correction, he was writing additional instruction to a church that was in a healthy condition. But he was writing to the saints that are faithful. To people like Pastor Simpson said several weeks ago that were doing the thing and struggling to do it right and trying to make it work and daily applying it to their lives. That's who he was writing to. And then he spends the first three chapters just clarifying what salvation is and making sure we know who we are in Christ. And then he hits us with the last three chapters where the hard conversations are where he talks about how to do this thing well. And he connected those two groups with a single word, therefore. So what he's saying is, in this whole letter, he's saying if you're a follower of Christ, do this. And he gives us chapter 4, 5, and 6 that we just spent several weeks going through. And he got all up in my business. And he taught me about how to be a better husband, how to be a better worker, how to be a better boss, how to be a better father, how to be a better son. How to. And there were some hard conversations in that. And there should be. And then as he comes to his closing, these last four verses, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 21 through 24, he said, "...so that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing. Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that you may, he may encourage your hearts." Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. What is it you heard when Paul wrote that? What do you hear in that? I I can tell you what I hear. As I'm digging through that and reading through that, Paul's not just sitting down going, okay, you know, people don't write letters anymore. When's the last time you wrote a letter? You know, it's all email, it's text, it's a great way to communicate. You remember the days when we wrote a letter and you had to mail it and wait for that thing to get somewhere? Some of you in the room are looking at me like, well, I don't even know what you're talking about. Uh, But Paul wrote him a letter. And when you got to the end of the letter, what did you want to say at the end? He wasn't just grabbing words for no reason. He was intentional about what he was saying and the Holy Spirit is inspiring the sign-off of the letter just like he was inspiring the opening and everything in between, what I hear from the heart of Paul is I hear the love of a father speaking to his children and challenging them to grow and be the people that God called them to be. That's what I hear. Paul was a spiritual father. We don't believe he was married, we don't believe he had children, but he was a spiritual father. He even considered himself a spiritual father. He says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Writing to that church, he said, for though you have countless gods in Christ, you do not have many fathers, for I became your father. In Christ Jesus, through the gospel, how many of us can say this? I urge you then, be imitators of me wow, I'd love to be able to say that and really believe that to tell people to be an imitator of me. Paul could say that. He wasn't perfect and didn't claim to be. He wrestled with who he used to be. And he compelled going forward by the driving of the Spirit to do the work of the kingdom of God, but he could look at himself and his life and say, therefore be an imitator of me. Follow me as I follow Christ, he says in another place. What I I hear in this and what I'm trying to communicate to you is I hear the heart of a father speaking to his children and I see and hear the Holy Spirit of God speaking through the man who was chosen and was inspired to write this and ultimately it's the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to us. When you read the book of Ephesians, I hope you don't, one, I hope and pray that you read the Word of God. If, If you don't spend time daily in the Word, I, I, I challenge you to do that. And if you read the Word of God, I pray that you would read the Word of God and realize it's not just a story, it's not just a book, it is the Lord Jesus speaking into our lives. There's a wide range of topics covered in the book of Ephesians. We've gone through those over several weeks. There were some that were hard conversations, as we said, that stepped on our toes, It challenged us to do more, challenged us to correct behaviors in our life. And that's necessary because God does discipline those that he loves. The book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 5 and 6, he says, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves, and he chastens every son whom he receives. The fact that the Lord disciplines us is proof to us that he loves us because if he didn't love us, he wouldn't even bother. But because I'm his son, he'll discipline me when I need it to get my attention and bring me to the place he wants me to be. he would be like, son, that that doesn't work that way. You you can't do that. We need to deal with that. I can relate to this. I, I can relate to this as a father. I've been blessed in my life. I've been allowed by God the Father to be a father. I, i've also fell in love with with brenda uh 27 28 years ago i asked her this morning i knew i'd mess that up uh and because i fell in love with her and wanted to do my life with her and she said yes she had two sons I've, god allowed me to become a stepfather as a father i have three children uh that are my natural bloodline that i was involved in that, and I, as a stepfather, have two additional sons that because I love their mother, my heart opened up and I loved them and allowed them to be a part of my family, and they allowed me to be a part of theirs. And then because I have five adult children and four of them have already been married, then praise God, I've been able to be a father-in-law. Through our four married children, we've picked up three additional daughters, and we've been picked up an additional son and, and, and our family continues to expand and God saw fit to allow us, me to be a grandfather and we, praise God, have 11 grandkids uh, and we don't know what we're going to finish with but that's where we're at right now and I get to be called Paw, by some awesome kids and I love it every time they do that or Paw and Meemaw, yeah, we're here, South Georgia, you can do that you can come up with the cool names but we're rocking the Paw and the Meemaw and we're good with that and I love it every time I hear one of them say it from the little ones to the big ones. And we love every single one of them. We love the ones we see frequently, we love the ones we don't get to see as often, and we love the ones that we haven't seen in a bit. But we love them all. Brenda and I talk about this, we're now at that stage of life, empty nest, where we've raised all our children, they're all gone, they're all doing life as adults, and they're raising their families, and we still talk about the things we did well and the things we wish we'd done better. If you're raising children, uh, it never ends. When they're adults and they're gone, you'll sit around and you'll have these conversations and you'll go, you know, I'm glad we did that. We were good about that. That was intentional. It had that desired impact. I wish we'd done that that better. I wish we'd addressed that sooner. I wish we'd have said this in that instant. Uh, there's a point where I just have to get out of the way and go, Lord, you, you saw fit to let me be a parent. I praise God that you did. And I ask you to finish what I couldn't do. Because... All he's really doing is loaning them to us for a season so that we can introduce them to him, so that they can do life well, and then there has to be a point where I get out of the way and allow him to work in their life, and I'm no longer the provider, he is. It kind of comes down to this for me at least, if I tried to put it into words. Parenting requires teaching independent decision-making. And then the hard part is getting out of the way, stepping back and allowing them age-appropriate appropriate decisions obviously but allowing them the opportunity to make their own decision and then the really hard part is getting out of the way and letting them reap the consequences of it whether it's good or bad because i hated watching my children deal with disappointment when they do well you rejoice and you go praise god this is awesome and then when you see your children struggling your heart as a father my heart aches to go in and fix it for them But if I really love them, I'm gonna stay out of the way unless it's appropriate for the age and the situation. You gotta know what that is and you'll never hit them all right. You'll never be 100% in that. But there's a lot of things that I just had to stay out of the way and let them deal with the disappointment so they could know how to deal with disappointment. My children didn't need me to rush in and fix everything for them. They needed to learn how to do that themselves so they could be adults. A, A quick example, my oldest son, That's my natural son Charles he's I knew I was gonna mess this up 42 in August right I'm looking at my wife she's either nodding her head yeah or "You're, you're way off he's I think he's 40 yeah okay 42 I got the nod of approval he'll be 42 in August and I can't believe I've got a child that's that old but we went through about two years where I didn't know where he was This has been a number of years ago. He went through a period in his life where it was a dark period, and I'll share this quickly for anybody who has a child going through this, and I know some of you probably do, and it doesn't take long in the church to find somebody who has a child. He's wandered away from the faith. So through this two-year period, he was just out there, had no communication with me. I had none with him, didn't know how to reach him, how to get in touch with him. He was up in Atlanta. We were living down here. Nobody knew what was going on in his life. And during that time, I can just say, as a dad, my heart was crushed and all I could do was go back in the office off of our bedroom and there were times when I could pray about this and carry a burden of prayer and there were times I couldn't even pray about it and I can remember one time I got on my face on the carpet in the office back there and I was praying and interceding on his behalf and weeping before God and all I can say is I felt like the Lord spoke into my life and I I don't know how to tell you this, it wasn't an audible voice, but I felt like I heard the Lord speak into my life, and he said, Jim, I love him more than you do. And what I received from that was not, he wasn't saying, you know, you don't love him enough. He was saying, I love him even more than you possibly can. What i I walked away from that with, and it's been years now, and I'll never forget it, is I didn't have to beg the Lord to get involved in his life and intercede in his life. He loved him enough to die for him, and he wanted him to serve him. And praise God, he is now. He's up in Atlanta. He's been on fire for the Lord for several years, and he challenges me when we talk about the Lord. But it hurts when your children aren't serving God. But I just remind you, he loves them more than you possibly could. And he wants them to serve him. So continue to pray for them, continue to be the example to them. I'll tell you real quick, Father's Day was just a few weeks ago, and I saw a meme, I think it was, a few right about that period, and somebody said, hey, name one thing your dad taught you. And immediately in my mind, there, my dad taught me a lot of things. He's gone on. He's not with us any longer. But uh, I, the first thing that came to my mind, and if my sister sees this, she'll absolutely nod her head. Uh, so I think the number one thing my dad used to say was stop making excuses. Don't make excuses. What he meant by that is own it. You make a mistake, own it. Admit it. Let's move on from that. Let's correct it if we can. Quit making excuses. Quit trying to say why it happened. Let's just say it happened. You did it, and and let's grow up from that. But I had two incidents happen this year that just probably my two favorite things as a dad that occurred, and they both just happened recently. My son Charles, the one I mentioned earlier that I was praying for, he's been on fire for the Lord now several years, and I'm not sure when this happened, and I may get this wrong, and he can correct me if he hears this, but I think it was during the period of time when he was away from the Lord, not during that two years, but that period was a longer period. That just was the end of it. He was at our house, and we had some wild grapes, some uh growing on the back fence of our at our place and, and I had him in the backyard and we were talking about that and, and if you know anything about grapes there's a pruning process for that in John chapter 15 uh, John uses that process to talk about the true vine and the branches and who we are in Christ and the fact we have to abide so that we can bear fruit and he prunes us and brings more fruit so I was illustrating that and using the vine to talk to my son about explaining the pruning process and what that might look like in his life well he said to me earlier this year he said you know every time i read john chapter 15 i can't help but remember that you know, and what he was telling me was even maybe when he was away from the lord the things that i was telling him when i had an opportunity they were taking root and they were growing and he can't let go of it and he can't get rid of it because it's there so again i encourage you with your children share christ with them all that you can and live Christ in front of them. My daughter, Sandy, she sent me a Father's Day card. I'm probably gonna keep it forever. I don't know, I may even frame it because I I, I resisted the urge to read it to you, but what she said to me there was priceless. She wrote down at the bottom and she said, the thing that really carried away from that that meant the most to me, she said, Dad, you taught me so many things when I was growing up. Some of them you knew you taught me, other things you didn't know. And then she listed several key things, but what my daughter said to me that meant so much to my heart was that The things I sat down and intentionally told her and showed her meant one thing, but the things she saw me doing meant a whole lot more. Your children are watching. People around you are are watching. Look, a father loves his children so much that he wants to know that he's had an impact in their lives for good. And I believe that's the heart that Paul writes this letter to the Ephesian church out of. He wants to know he spent two years with them. He wants to know, sitting in prison in Rome. He wants to know that what he shared with them is actually bearing fruit. He said in 6:21 of the book of Ephesians, "So that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing." Tychicus, the beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord, would tell you everything. And I went, um, "Who in the world is Tychicus?" And I'll be honest, I've been reading the Word for a few years now, and uh, I'm, I'm still, I'll be a student of the Word, I hope, until I leave this world, but first thought I had, to be honest, was, well, that's not a name I'm going to find anywhere else in Scripture, and I was absolutely wrong. I was shocked to find that he shows up several places in Scripture. Uh, I found in another place that it points out that he's from Asia. He's obviously a Christ follower, but it even lists the city or the place that he's from. And I actually found that he appears five different times in Scripture. The first place you find Tychicus is in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. And then it proceeds on in what we just read in Ephesians 6, 21 and 22. He's also listed in the letter that Paul writes from prison to the church in Colossia, 4:7, And then he also mentions him in a book, in his letter to Titus Uh, Chapter 3, verse 12, and he mentions him in 2 Timothy 4, verse 12. This passage in Acts, going all the way back to the setup that we were talking about earlier, if you can go back with me, after that riot happened in Ephesus, the silversmith created a riot, Acts chapter 19. It says that Paul goes to Macedonia for three months and then a conspiracy with the Jews against Paul rises up and he goes back to Asia... But when this happens, it also lists seven different men that are following along with Paul. Those men are listed by name. I'll spare you me trying to pronounce their names, but their names are listed. Also, the region that they're from is listed, and you'll find that they're kind of a delegation, if you will, of men from the various churches in the region that Paul's been preaching, and they're following along with Paul. They're on the journey with Paul. And then years later, here's Paul in prison in Rome, and he writes back, and he mentions Tychicus, and he specifically states that he's a beloved brother and he's a faithful minister. Now, when he writes to the church in Colossia, his words being purposeful and having meaning He even says more than that. He's not just trying to flatter. He's not just using words to sound good. When he writes to Colossus, he says the same thing. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister, but he also adds he's a fellow servant in the Lord. What he's saying about Tychicus to these churches is he can be trusted listen to what he has to say the Spirit of God is in him like he's in me and he's speaking to you and this man can be trusted he's shown himself faithful and he's speaking on our behalf and the other thing I carried away from this that really just stuck to me is Paul didn't do ministry alone Paul wrote most of the New Testament a vast section of it but he wasn't doing it by himself we're not called to do Christian life alone Caleb mentioned this last week, and I'll give it another mention. We're called to do Christian life in community, and it can't possibly be enough just to come to church on Sunday morning. That's why we have groups, we have community groups. We're kind of, most of them are on a a short uh, time out, if you will, for the summer. First week of September, we'll be launching groups again. And if you're not a part of a group, a community group, I challenge you, get involved in a community group. It's when you get into a community group with a few other believers who are like-minded as you are you start to challenge one another on what do you believe and why do you believe it we've had some great conversations at our house in our group where people have not always agreed and thankfully no they haven't but we should be able to disagree go to the scripture and see what it says and speak into each other's life we also do life together where we pray with one another can tell you how many times somebody has said hey pray with me about this and we've prayed about it, and then we've seen the outcome come the other side, and, and had some victory in Jesus together. But if you're not in a community group, maybe you want to lead a group. Please talk to me about it. Let me know about it. I'll be looking to, for some group leaders to launch some groups in September so that we can have more groups than we have because we need to do this thing together. Paul wasn't doing it by himself. He had a support network. And if you're like me, I'll just admit it. Sometimes when I'm reading these letters from Paul, I'll get to the section where he's signing it off and he's starting to list some names and I'll just kind of blow through it and go, yeah, that's the sign off. And that's Bob and Ted and, you know, the other guys. But there's a point to it. He's mentioning men and sometimes women that were doing life with him, doing ministry with him, and he frequently lists them by name. And that's how we find Tychicus listed five different times in the New Testament. Paul's situation in Rome is dire. He doesn't know. He's going to go stand before Nero. He's going to have a trial before the emperor of Rome, Nero, and he was uh, possibly going to have his head cut off. And then if Nero didn't see him as a threat, he'd let him be released. And we don't know exactly what happened because Scripture doesn't record it, but the church history has basically Paul was probably released after his first first appearance before Nero, then arrested at a later date, brought back before him, and at that time his head was taken off. But Paul knew his situation was dire. The people in Ephesus knew it was dire and he was writing them for a reason. He wanted to encourage them so that they'd know how he was. Paul wasn't looking for anybody's sympathy. Paul wasn't looking for somebody to support him. Paul wasn't trying to garner attention for himself. He wanted to encourage this church in Ephesus. And by doing so, he encourages us. He wasn't fearful of execution. Paul was totally unwilling to set the example of how to live, live for Jesus. That's why he, said he was able to say, follow me as I follow Christ. But if he didn't just set the example for living for Jesus, he was also willing to set the example of how to die for Jesus. He said to them in his sign-off in verse 23, Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This, this word here, peace, Just to define a few terms, peace to the brothers. This word for peace here is to join, to tie together into a whole properly, wholeness. An example, it's when all essential parts are joined together. It's God's gift of wholeness. I don't, I don't know what comes to your mind when you read that about the essential parts all joined together, but for me, it's more than just the absence of struggle. In my mind, at least I can go here and forgive me for my example, but it's when all cylinders are hitting together. None's on a misfire. Everything's in place. Everything's making power. We're able to get some work done because all the parts are working together in unison. It's all working together and going, focused on what's important. He also said love with faith, and the word that he uses here is agape. This word here is love which centers in a moral preference. In the New Testament, agape agape typically refers to divine love, what God prefers. I've heard for years agape love described this way. It's the love that God loves with. It's the love that loves with no expectation of anything in return. It gives sacrificially. Paul knows that words have power, and he's using them intentionally, and he's using them purposely, And I have to ask, what is it that Paul's saying? If I just kind of put it into my own words, what I hear Paul saying is love in the church prefers the other person before myself and it's confident and it's filled with trust in God and I'm modeling Christ. And I'm only able to do that because God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ is able to bestow that to me and work that through me as I'm in relationship with them. Again, it's the heart of a father speaking to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But when you look at the scripture, remember it's God the Father speaking to you personally and speaking to me personally. The word here that's used in the scripture for father is one who imparts life and is committed to it. It's a progenitor. It's bringing into being to pass on the potential for likeness. There are earthly fathers. I praise God that I've been able to be one. Uh, he gives us the ability to reproduce and you are allowed to be a father but you may or may not be committed to the process to see it through to his conclusion. And there can be a lot of different reasons for that. Some, uh, I won't even get into that but the heavenly father, our heavenly father, he's so committed, he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll go with you to the ends of the earth. He's so committed to it that he died for my sin. He was willing to come to earth and pay for my sin because I couldn't. He said, Paul said in Ephesians 6, 24, he said, grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And if I can define those two words real quick, this word for love, Paul uses a different word. He doesn't use agape again, but this time he uses a word that speaks to the believer. It's for the believer preferring to live through Christ, embracing God's will, choosing his choices, and obeying them through his power. It means to actively doing what the Lord prefers with him by his power and direction. It's always defined by God. It's a discriminating affection which involves choice and selection. The kind of love I'm supposed to have back toward God is going, I love you so much, I want to do what pleases you. I know I can't do it in my own strength, so I ask you to work through me. Again, we're in relationships for this to work. A father who loves his children doesn't just always affirm everything that they do. There are times when a father who loves his children is gonna guide them into truth by using words of correction. There are other times when he has to confront certain behaviors and deal with it. And then when they're doing well, he's able to affirm the things that they're doing. It, allows, it requires correction, confrontation, and affirmation. And a good loving father knows how to use each of the three. This word incorruptible that he spoke of, I found this one really challenging. He said, this word is no corruption. It's unable to experience deterioration. It's incorruptibility, not perishable. The example given is it's lacking the very capacity to decay or constitutionally break down. What I hear Paul saying with these definitions is the love in the church is love that actively does what the Lord prefers And it lacks the capacity to decay. Lord, what do you want me to do? Empower me to do it. Help me to get out of the way that you can do it through me. What Paul desired for them is what the Lord desires for us. He desired for them to have the life-giving best. And sometimes correction is what brings life-giving best. The point is I have to not reject it. I have to receive it. I have to be willing to see it and hear it and apply it to me. Just a few quick Proverbs as I wrap this up. Proverbs 12:1 said that whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. English standard version. We didn't allow our youngest son to use that word, by the way. Uh, I, I think at one point in his life he thought it was a profane word, and as he got older, he found out, oh, stupid's just a normal word. But anyway, uh, Proverbs 15:32 said, "Whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence." Proverbs 1:7 said that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs ten seventeen said, whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. And in Proverbs three twelve, for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, his son, and whom he delights. The point is we have a choice to make. We hear correction. We hear the hard conversation. We hear a message that comes from our pastor that steps on our toes, and we have the choice to reject it, or we have the choice to say, wait, that's talking to me. I need to deal with that. I need to accept that. I need to admit that, and I need to change that, and I can grow from that. What was Paul's motivation? Was Paul just being harsh? Was Paul just being mean-spirited? Was Paul being intolerant? I don't think so at all. I think Paul was speaking to that church. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to us out out of genuine love. Wanted the best for them, as the Lord wants the best for us, and he's challenging us to step up to it and he's given us the method to do it it basically just comes down to being in a relationship with Jesus if I'm not in a relationship with Jesus the Christ this is time to make a change in my life whether you're in this room or whether you're watching online you can make that change today and the only way I can go and change my world is first of all I have to be changed I have to be changed I can't offer what I don't have uh, there's a prayer ministry team will meet with you After we conclude with a prayer, we'd love to pray with you. If you don't know the Lord Jesus or you're just not sure if you've made that commitment or you don't know what we're talking about with the Holy Spirit and you're interested in that or maybe you've got a prayer need that was mentioned this morning, you'd like somebody to pray with you for healing. We'd be more than happy to stand with you and pray and agree with you. But we're going to close in prayer. The prayer ministry team will be on the back. And then as always, go in the power of the Spirit of God and go and change your world. Heavenly Father, we praise your name. We worship you and honor you. Lord, we know that none of us can do this in our own power, in our own strength, and we wouldn't want to attempt to. We just invite you, Spirit of God, to do a work in us individually, do a work in us as a church, do a work in this city, and help us, Lord, to truly change our world. Help us to, first of all, be transformed by the renewing of our mind. In Jesus' name we praise you. Amen. Amen. Go change your world.